The ABA is joining with Tropical Birding for the first time for an extraordinary adventure in Thailand in 2019. This is Thailand birding with a camera. So if you are a photographer that likes birds or a birder who likes to take a few photos, this is a trip with you in mind. And there are no shortage of incredible photo subjects in Southeast Asia, stuff like sunbirds, pitta, incredible pheasants, spoon-billed sandpiper, some of the coolest looking birds on the planet. Plus, mammals, culture, and amazing food with ABA friends. This is setting up to be a really exceptional time. Have I interested you yet? Is your mouth watering for bird photography and the real deal pad thai? Get more information at aba.org slash travel. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I, as always, am your host, Nate Swick. And I'm back now from the biggest week in American birding, the Northwest Ohio gathering of birding friends and family where we celebrate migratory birds and the people who love them, which is, let's be honest, all of us, if you are listening to this podcast and you don't love migratory birds, well, I'm glad you're here, but I, I do have to wonder why just a little Anyway, congrats are definitely in order for Kim Kaufman and the whole Black Swamp Bird Observatory crew for another successful event. The weather even cooperated this time. The birding was exceptional. Uh, I got to lead a trip out to Erie County on the first day, and my group had a cerulean warbler literally in arm's length away. If this bird had been any more intrusive, we would have had to take out a restraining order. It was absurd. Easily the bird of the trip for me, though I understand they had some ridiculous warblers the second weekend, including a black-throated gray warbler as a capper, one of only very few records for Ohio. After last year's wintry and rainy introduction to northern Ohio, it was really wonderful to see the magic of this place up close. There was a a period where I was standing on the boardwalk chatting with some friends, and four bay-breasted warblers were just cavorting. And I feel like that's an appropriate use of that word right nearby, right across the boardwalk from me. And and every time I put up my binoculars, I got a face full of these little toffee candy-colored warblers. And I thought, you know, this this is all right. This is not a bad way to spend a little time. We also recorded a great panel discussion featuring five women who have done big years. Many of the names you probably know. Uh, some have been guests on this podcast before. But it is a it is super, and we will uh, we'll try to produce it so it sees life here on the show. It's a, it's a fun conversation and an important one too, I think. So keep an ear out for that in the weeks ahead. On the show today, I'm going to talk a little bit about a meteorologist's adventures with the birding community, though that might be better described as misadventures. But first, birding editor Ted Floyd and I are birders, obviously. We're also parents with an interest in passing on our passion for birds to our progeny, or at least uh, figuring out how to combine birding and parenting in a way that doesn't irritate our spouses or, or alert the authorities. Anyway, we'll, we'll chat birds and kids right after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the first part of May 2018. A first provincial record from Quebec highlights this period's exciting bird records. A Eurasian skylark was photographed in Lanaudière, north of Montreal. This represents the first record of this species in the eastern part of the continent. Eurasian skylark is an uncommon vagrant to western Alaska. Those are the East Asian subspecies Pekinensis. This Quebec bird appears to be the nominate European breeding birds, which, incidentally, 
was the subspecies introduced to Vancouver, British Columbia, where a small population has persisted for decades. That was not the only first for Quebec. The province also boasted its first record of neotropic cormorant, though that bird was far more expected given its increasing prevalence as a vagrant around the Great Lakes and eastward in the last several years. In Texas, an Aztec thrush was seen for a couple days in Willacy County. It had been some time since this species had occurred in the ABA area. This was the seventh for Texas of this sharp-looking Mexican breeding bird. Tis the season for Bahama Mockingbird in South Florida. There have been at least three individuals of the last couple weeks alone, all in the southern part of the state, as expected. Other first to report a varied bunting was seen at a feeder in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, only the third record of the species east of the Mississippi Pennsylvania continues to have perhaps the most unusual state bird list in the ABA area with some real wild records like Bahama Woodstar and Spotted Rail, among others. This certainly adds to that menagerie. And an apparent plumbius vireo was photographed in DuPage County, Illinois, where it would be a first record. Like the previously mentioned neotropic cormorant and varied bunting, yet another southwestern species out of range to the northeast might be something going on there for birders to keep in mind. This was a short roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash ABA rare or follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA bird alert. Young birder programs are an important part of the ABA's mission. Development of younger birders and providing resources for them is something that we put a lot of organizational energy into. Uh, but birding editor Ted Floyd and I are going to go earlier and younger. We're going to talk about kids and birding, what we sort of think of as kids up to middle school age, maybe. Uh, the hows, the whys, the wipes. So, so, so many wipes. Uh, welcome back, Ted. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. Yep. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Let's start by establishing... Our credentials. We are both parents and we are both birders. Uh, how old are your children? Right. So they're uh, 11 and 13, which if uh, you don't remember are the uh, middle school years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mine are, um, so I have, a, I have a son that is is nine and a daughter that is four. So mine are just a tad younger than yours. But I, I think we both are coming from the perspective of, you know, we both value birding and we both value spending time with family. So we, we definitely want to combine those in any way we possibly can. Am I, am I correct in that assumption? <laughs> I think that's a good assumption, yes. Yeah. Speaking, speaking for myself, I can say that um, I, I, I tried to get my kids out in the field as almost as early as possible. I had my son, uh, within a couple days of bringing him home from the hospital, I was first out at my local patch with the stroller trying to, uh, trying to see what I could see. It wasn't the best time of year, but uh, it was still fun to get out. Um, how early did you, did you have your kids out? Right. So in the case of my daughter, who comes first, uh, just as you said, uh, just a few days after birth, uh, the story of my son is a bit odder, <laughs> more intense. So he was born during a, a really severe blizzard here in Colorado, and the hospital was having multiple emergencies and it was short-staffed. Uh, and since my son was born normally, um, the nurses kind of just handed him off to me and said <laughs> they had to deal with some crises and handed me a bottle and just told me to wander about the hospital and to get back in touch with him if there were any problems. He and I actually somehow managed, 
I won't disclose the name of the hospital. I don't want to get in trouble here, but we have, <laughs> we actually managed to get outside uh, onto a, a balcony. So he and I were owling um, about 55 or 60 minutes after he was born. Hmm. A real milestone, baby's first uh, eBird checklist. <laughs> well, let me mention uh, eBird checklists <laughs> while you're at it. Uh, I think some of our listeners may know that as far as I am aware, I um, – I'm the Cal Ripken of, of e-birding. I've been e-birding for something like, uh, I don't know the number, but 4,362 days in a row yeah. or something. Yeah, the real Iron Man of, of birding. <laughs> I've actually kept an e-bird checklist every day since my son was born. Uh, and huh. uh, it just goes to show that you can, in fact, bird every single day of somebody's lifetime. And so how did you how did you do it? When you began taking your kids out into the field, did you have to make any sort of changes in the way that you, you went about birding? Obviously, babies, I mean, we talk about birding coming with a lot of gear. Obviously, babies come with a ton of gear as well and a lot of needs that need to be met at various uh, times that cannot be predicted. How did you get out in the field with with your kids? I guess I would say I swapped the... Uh scope and tripod for the uh for the diaper kit <laughs> but uh but, yeah. but other than that really there wasn't that much of a change you know the the kids strap on front with those i think they're for the baby carriers that the baby yeah. yes. and they basically as far as i can tell love going outside and certainly have no say in mm-hmm. the matter so i uh, thought they were both uh, sort of you know fall and winter births uh, we were outside right away watching birds and uh, you know, I, I, obviously there are a million and one little differences but the basic, I don't know, mode and tempo of birding didn't change too much for me. Yeah, I found the same thing. Um, I actually became quite a, an expert on the various accoutrements that you strap on your on your person to carry children around. We, you know, received some as hand me downs, received some as gifts, and uh, I really liked the the baby Bjorn when the child was very small. I had the head support, and I, I found I was easy to strap the uh, my binoculars on side saddle uh, underneath the baby Bjorn and be able to access them without too much trouble. Uh, even, even I even carried around my camera sometimes. Uh, as you said, you know the kids don't have a choice, but they take to being outdoors so well. I found that the sort of easy pace of birding, you know, you don't go too fast. You're kind of pausing often, was really conducive to um, putting children to sleep. So uh, my kids would. They would fall asleep in the baby Bjorn or the or the backpack that I sort of rigged, and I would be able to bird pretty normally up to about two years old without without too much trouble. Yeah. Hey, let me address that putting to sleep uh, matter. So, again, back to my first child, my my daughter, uh, she was an exquisite sleeper. She was just really good at sleeping. Yeah. Uh, my son like me, is an insomniac. He was a terrible sleeper. He still is, actually. <laughs> but just, we'll say he's a light sleeper. So mm-hmm. picture, and I'm really sort of addressing this to parents of young children now, it's it's one in the morning, and the, the baby has woken up and just will not go back to bed. And you, you kind of know the uh, the routine with with with, mm-hmm. you, with your partner. Well, uh, who's going to deal with the kid? Well, it, <laughs> right, it, was, right, right. it was always me, uh, because he was delighted as can tell to uh, go outside and this was in the, the summer of 2007 if i'm doing the math right and oblige my interest in listening to the uh, nocturnal migration of migrants <laughs> over uh, the plains of eastern colorado and 
Really, uh, we spent an incredible amount of time just outside uh, listening to upland sandpipers and chipping sparrows and other birds like that migrating over. And those are, I mean, to this day, it's, it's been you know well over a decade now, but just sort of my fondest memories uh, of all time, just being outside with a little you know seven or eight month old who was very alert and engaged and wide awake. Mm-hmm. You know, he would have been a, a mewling, crying mess if we'd left him in the house, but he was just out there with me, you know, walking the, the mean streets of suburban Denver, listening to sparrows. <laughs> like uh, sparrows and sandpipers migrating over. So yeah, where there's a will, there's a way. And uh, yeah. um, you know, especially for those of us who like to say that we're never not a birder, that's true even mm-hmm. when the kid is up in the middle of the night. Yeah, you you, you talk about a, a child being very alert and engaged. I, I found that to be the case as well. I, I distinctly remember an incident where I was at a local park in, in Chapel Hill where we were living in North Carolina, and um, there were tons of wood thrushes singing. I mean, it was the most wood thrushes I'd ever heard at one point. And we were able to walk, you know, almost immediately beneath a wood thrush in full song, not more than about four feet above our heads. And I just, you know, I remember the look on on my son's face as he was hearing this sound, this kind of ethereal bird sound, uh, still one of my favorites, and and just like really aware of it for the first time. It was really kind of a a neat moment. And that sort of thing happens all the time when you're out in the field with kids, I think. Yeah, I can remember an incident like that with a a long-eared owl, uh, for example, and and my Mm -hmm. daughter. I, I would also extend your wood thrush story to uh, to other taxa. I don't know if you really wanted to go into this realm or not, but uh, dragons, <laughs> I, I figured it probably butterflies, uh, yeah. frogs and toads and and so forth. I mean, those things are <laughs> up to a point, uh, sort of more uh, hands-on, if you will, uh, yes. than birds. I'm talking about you know, kids now who are old enough to walk around and chase after yes. things, but uh, yeah, you, know, the, you use the word, I think, ethereal for, for the wood thrush, and I completely agree with that characterization, but there's also something sort of tangible about a, uh, a toad you can chase after or a butterfly you can scamper about. So Yeah, and, and absolutely. And I, I've also found that um, as my kids got older and, and no longer wanted to be in the backpack, wanted to be out moving around and running around, I mean, I started becoming more interested in things like uh, snakes and herps and bugs and all sorts of stuff. I mean, my son and I began collecting insects for an insect collection because, you know, that's what we were kind of focused on when we were outdoor. I think that's one thing that parents as birders can do to continue that interest is to is to become more aware of the things that are that are easier for children to to key in on, uh, like herps and insects. Uh, birds can be actually kind of tough. And to move things maybe in a slightly different direction from what you just said, I, I just want to be clear that for every episode involving the uh, nocturnal flight calls of birds migrating over Colorado. There are probably Mm -hmm. 10 times as many instances outdoors when we're really not doing much of anything, to be honest with you. Uh, there, there, there's a mm-hmm. park down the street where, uh, whether the kids were little and strapped in front of me or, you know, much more recently riding their bikes or, or something like that, we're really just outside. And, you know, I might just sort of sneak a glimpse here or two at a passing a hawk or, or warbler. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they're literally riding their bikes or throwing a ball around or tossing a frisbee. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's not all serious or even sort of semi-serious birding it's it's being outside and breathing fresh air and and feeling the sunshine on your skin that's probably more of our outdoor time uh than than actually you know formally birding yeah i've actually gotten quite good at um picking out migrating or just raptors in general at soccer games (laughs) when you have like a wide open view of uh of the sky (laughs) yeah soccer games and uh when my kids were a little bit younger i kept a list of review species i'd seen at playgrounds <laughs> because i just spent so much time at uh, at playgrounds and i can remember yeah. oh goodness um 
here in Colorado, everything from uh, well, brown pelican kick comes to mind. We saw one at, at a playground, and uh, nothing else coming to mind of that magnitude quite yet. But uh, yeah, we saw an awful lot of great birds just while we were swinging on swings and sliding down slides. Yeah, I I, I came to greatly appreciate um, when people would find quote unquote good birds, like unusual birds, birds that I would chase in places where there were playgrounds. Uh, (laughs) I recall one incident, I I actually woke my son up from a nap. I just put him down when someone found a northern lapwing about a county north of my one, like the second record for my state. And I was like, oh, geez, I I gotta get this bird. So I actually woke him up and took him in the car. We hopped in the car, we went up there. And um, yeah, lo and behold, everyone was watching the bird from this church parking lot. And behind the church was actually a playground. So he was perfectly content to just run over there and, and do the slides right. while I was, you know, panning the fields and found the bird and got uh, wonderful looks at it. He actually got a look at it, too. So he's got a northern lapwing on his lifeless. Should that matter to him? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, you, you brought up a, a point I was actually going to. Uh, well, you uh, inadvertently, I think, brought up a point I was going to uh, to get at. And that's sort of the whole question of the uh, the conduct of uh, parents and, and children and, you know, say, mm. at a lapwing chase. And I uh, I wasn't with you there, but it sounds as if uh, everybody had a had a grand old time. And the, the comment about that yeah. really is directed toward parents more than anybody else, but maybe the whole of the the birding community. And it's just that I, I think it's it's awesome if if kids are out there with parents or mentors or godparents or or whoever, and you know maybe they're not exactly um, exhibiting the best of birding behavior. You know, not wearing white <laughs> and you know speaking quietly and not making dramatic movements. But but you can take that way too far. You know, birding is not like going to church or uh, being at yeah. a chamber music concert or uh, you know in court proceedings. It, it's actually okay for kids to to run around and even make loud noises and possibly heaven forbid scare off a bird and you know if there's anybody out there parent or non-parent who um, has issues with that i think that's the problems with you not with <laughs> not not not, not with, with the rest of us it's great to have as many people out there it's i'll just bring this up i my kids and i actually my whole family and i uh, like to go uh, birding at major league baseball games i mean you talk about distractions <laughs> i mean the wave is going on yeah. there are fifty thousand people yelling there's just so much noise and just every disruption imaginable and you can still see some some great birds there so it's okay um to bring the kids it's great to bring the kids and it's okay if they're just a little bit rambunctious or, or so i opine <laughs> yeah do you have any sort of uh, strategy for getting out in the field with kids? Do you have there certain places that you um, you specifically like to go to because you know that uh, that there'll be plenty of plenty to do? No, I don't. But I I do have the following to say, and mm-hmm. it has to do with. Um, leaving behind this sort of uh, very understandable, and I, I do this myself all the time, sort of birderly preoccupation with a uh, a goal or outcome. So, so often mm-hmm. when we go birding, you know, we're looking for that lapwing, to use the example uh, you just used, or we are seeking a particular year bird, or we want to get the perfect photo, or we just want to get to the top of a mountain, let's say. And I find that that never works with kids. If you just, if you say something <laughs> yeah. like, well, if we just go another three miles, we'll get the black swift. Or um, if you just hang tight here, you know, the, uh, the, the rare bird will come back to the bird feeder. So even if I mm-hmm. personally have a goal, and let's say the goal is black swift, you know, I, I don't 
say, well, we're going to make it and you know, four miles will be there. Instead, <laughs> we just sort of take it as it comes. And if we see a northern river otter on the way in mm-hmm. or just a, a beautiful sunrise or an unusual geological feature, or let's not even be scientific about it if it's just some random antic uh, along the way, that's how we do it. And I may privately harbor my own goal. <laughs> Let's say the, the Black Swift or the Northern Lapwing, but I rarely, if ever, bring that in. I, I think that really sort of defeats the whole purpose. So there's a very, and I'm sorry to speak in cliches here, but there's a very sort of a, you know, in the moment, uh, sort of in the present time uh, aspect mm-hmm. of being a uh, a birder when you have kids or yeah, really, and by the way, non-birders uh, of any age uh, as as well. Uh, just sort of enjoy whatever you're seeing. If you get the quote-unquote target, great. Uh, but if you're just sort yeah. of enjoying the uh, the walk or the morning or the big sit or the time at the playground or whatever you're doing it the right way. I think that sometimes we can worry too much about what could happen and it, it almost never does. And then I think you just have to be flexible and, and prepared with the knowledge that you can probably handle just about anything that happens when you're out in the field. <laughs> yep. No, I, I agree. And if I can, uh, sort of maybe sum that up and uh, maybe make it a little more, uh, I don't know, universal, at least the, the way I see it. I'm pretty sure I can quantify this if I have to, that I've done much more birding since my kids were born than pre-children. And if you had told me as a teenager when I was birding every day, you know, before and after school, that there would come a time in my life when I was in my 40s, and I've actually recently turned 50, when even with kids, I would be birding more than I was as a high school student. I would have thought that was impossible. But the thing is, I th- you know, circumstances demand it. And I'm just going to give you two really quick anecdotes. So um, this morning, mm-hmm. my daughter's plans for getting to school changed at the last minute. And uh, she asked me to walk her to an unfamiliar place to meet some friends. And I thought, oh, geez, I really don't want to do this. I have a staff meeting to prepare <laughs> for. And, and, yeah, but we had to do it, and we went through a park. And I got a year bird out of it. I heard my first northern water thrush this morning. And you know, that just wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for you know um, a kid who had to be walked through a, a park with me. Tomorrow, I'm doing a, a bio blitz for the Nature Conservancy, or I should say, with the Nature Conservancy. And I was kind of almost hoping to sort of worm my way out of it. Uh, but my son is really keen on this because it's an adventure. It involves travel way out to the uh, mm-hmm. eastern part of the country, and we're going to sleep in a tent. We're actually, we're actually arriving this evening, uh, and then we're going to, uh, to go out overnight and listen for owls, and he's really into that type of birdie. He'll probably sleep during the daytime. <laughs> part <of> the <laughs> but you know, those are two things that I think it would have been easy for me to sort of rationalize or sort of justify my way out of but mm-hmm. I did have to kind of get my daughter to this rendezvous this morning and my son is pretty insistent that we go camping tonight so those are just sort of two ways in which I think I'm birding more than I would have otherwise I think there's a temptation sometimes maybe to see our children as sort of a ready-made birding <laughs> companion uh, do you think that there's any value or merit to sort of uh, heavily encouraging a more birding specific lifestyle well i can only speak on behalf of myself you know when i read stories about people like uh leopold mozart or uh earl woods you know who produced uh, wolfgang amadeus mozart and tiger woods respectively I, th- that's just not for for me uh never mind what sort of a neurotic impact it might have on <laughs> on, on the kids I'm, I'm just thinking about myself um as a as a really not even as a parent, but just just, just as a person uh, that I guess I'm sort of, I'm sorry if this is a cliche, but sort of content to be who I am. And if mm-hmm. somebody wants to follow in my footsteps, that's really their decision and not mine. <laughs> so the following is going to sound horribly decadent, but really 
this is more about me than it is about them. <laughs> I really enjoy birding, and um, as you know, their dependents, they to some extent sort of have to do with what I do and what I say. So especially, you know, especially when they're younger. So um, if if dad is traveling, they kind of know it's going to involve birds, and if they want to go with dad, uh, it's going to involve uh, right. birding. So again, that, I know that's sort of a, a decadent way of of putting it, but my, my short answer to that question would be: I I can't imagine pushing anybody, but I'm totally happy to have anybody go along for the right. ride with me. Do you, are, are they good birders? Would they, con, would they consider themselves to be birders? <laughs> you know, they are going to be listening to this. Um, so, they're different birders, I, yeah. I, I guess I would say. And I, and I really like that. You know, they, they, I don't think they really fit the, if you will, the kind of classic or traditional ABA birder mm-hmm. mode. Um, as far as I know, they don't keep lists or chase after most birds on the other hand i'll sometimes get text messages saying you know sandhill cranes coming or mm-hmm. i've got bush tits at the playground so you know, they, they know their way around the the local avifauna they can get very intensely into uh, sort of wild and crazy aspects of birding like going birding all night long but let's just say a northern lapwing yeah were to show up well, actually that is a pretty stunning bird but let's say a um a redneck stint were to show up, I can practically guarantee you that they wouldn't be there with me <laughs> looking for So Right. I, I can speak from my own experience, not from as a parent, but as a birder. Uh, I was a pretty serious birder as a child. And then when I got into high school, I sort of put it aside and ended up doing other things. Uh, and that kind of persisted through much of college. And I ended up coming back to it in a big yeah. way. So I think that the the best you can do is sort of instill this sort of nature ethos into your kids and and who knows how it's going to manifest itself down the road that's a great point and i'll uh share an anecdote that i've actually shared in other venues before you can read about this for example in the uh the book good birders still don't wear white but when i was uh on the verge of becoming a parent i talked to a a birding friend of mine virginia maynard uh about whose kids at that time were a little bit older than mine are now about uh sort of the age at which you should start bird watching with mm-hmm. kids and you know her answer was you know in the womb or you know, <laughs> right. you know when they're still in the hospital and i really took that to heart but she also made the point to me that of course kids may well go in some other direction for a while but they'll always have that exposure uh, to the natural world that will probably come back and 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 really benefit them in ways you can't even mm-hmm. imagine uh, so for example now her uh, her son is the compiler of my favorite Christmas count. Huh. You know, and he's found his own way in life and does his own things, and he's his own person. I, I, I wouldn't you know, say he's a chip off the old block or anything like that. He really is his own person. But I, I think it's very much to um, his parents' credit that they took him hiking and birding and, you know, I don't know the whole story, but probably you know, botanizing and mm-hmm. you know, butterflying and so forth. And, and both he and his sister are uh, very much you know, green nature, environmental, just you know, general sort of competent, healthy, happy, well-adjusted young people who love the out-of-doors. So there, there's very much that. You know, my daughter's already threatening to become a marine biologist <laughs> you know, you know, with, with focus on not, not on seabirds, by the way, but, you know, we're talking kelp forests and corals and so forth. And if that's where birding leads her, I think that's that's awesome. And by the way, even if it leads her into something that really isn't biological or or natural at all, all of this exposure can't be bad for her. I think right. it's, 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 it's always, it's a positive good and it'll be exciting to see where it leads. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was a lot of fun, Ted. Thanks for the discussion. Yep. Thanks for having me. We'll keep it going. And now 
Stay in your lane, weatherman. One of the more exciting undertakings in birding in the last decade or so has been the introduction of radar ornithology into the consciousness of the greater birding community. There are a lot of birders now who are aware of how Doppler radar can be used to see birds migrating at night. It's one of those things that is, you know, even still a little bit niche, even within the niche interest of birding, but awareness is growing and it's helped in part by social media and initiatives like Cornell's Birdcast. We talked about that about a month ago. But as things build, they increasingly sort of sneak into the non-birding world. And that happened a couple weeks ago when a map showing the Doppler array of migratory birds one night was shared by a Wisconsin bird organization. It was a really cool map, one of those nights where things are really popping. And that was eventually seen by WNDU South Bend meteorologist Mike Hoffman. From WNDU, your severe weather station, Chief Meteorologist Mike Hoffman has your Storm Team 16 forecast. That's the guy. And boy, he was not having it. He shared that Facebook post and attempted to debunk it, claiming that these were not birds at all. This was a phenomenon called ground clutter, when the Doppler radar bounces off an inversion layer of cold air and, geez, I, I don't know, I really couldn't follow it. But TV meteorology isn't about getting it right. What is it about, overdramatic WNDU announcer? It's about fast pinpoint information. It's a big deal. It's about no more delays. No more delays. And it's about time. Saving time. Live Super Doppler 16. Now you'll see dangerous weather as it's happening in real time. Live Super Doppler 16. Exactly. And when your life is on the line, you don't need to know about bird migration. All those little blue dots get in the way of tornadoes anyway. As with anyone who gets anything wrong on the internet, he was set upon like a flock of vultures on a dead wildebeest. And I sympathize as someone who has been wrong on the internet before. But even in the face of links and scholarly articles and personal expertise by radar ornithologists, professional and amateur, he kind of doubled down on the ground clutter thing. I don't really know what to make of all this, to be honest. It was, it was funny, but you know, ephemeral in the way social media can be. And I'm sure a few Mike Hoffman fans came away with a mistaken impression and surely a lack of appreciation of the truly remarkable scale of bird migration in North America, which is really the most amazing thing about these maps to me. Look, local weathermen are actually pretty good at their jobs, jokes aside. The, the myth of the mistaken weatherman is, is a relic of older times, like dial-up modems and circular dials on telephones. Weather forecasts are usually dead on. Doppler radar is crazy precise these days, which is a, a big part of the reason birds show up as well as they do. Bird migration is dramatic, so I guess I understand sort of having skepticism. I would have ended taking this all as a reminder that people are interested in birds and birding and bird science is getting out there in the regular world. That's a good thing, even if it's initially mistaken. Except that meteorologist Mike Hoffman deleted the post. It's gone. Evidently, he could not handle being so very, very publicly wrong. And all birders know that birds can make a fool out of you sometimes, but evidently that is not appreciated elsewhere. So it really was a, a missed opportunity, I think, though. The meteorologist Mike Hoffman might not see it that way. Not a washout. No. Okay, Mike, thanks a lot. No, no, it was a washout. But I'm going to start calling migratory birds uh, ground clutter now, so that's not nothing. 
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You can support this podcast and all of the free resources that the ABA provides to the birding community in North America and beyond by joining the ABA. We would love to have you as a member. In addition to helping promote a better birding community in North America, members also receive six issues of Birding Magazine and four issues of Birder's Guide per year, as well as discounts to our partners like Beautyo Books and the opportunity to participate in ABA events and travel. You can get more information at aba.org join. Special shout out to Zach Poland of Guthrie, Oklahoma, Michael Hamburg of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Lindsay Lee of Atlanta, Tennessee, who I would encourage to introduce herself in rhyme from here on out because that is fun to say. They all joined the ABA and noted the podcast as one of the reasons. Thank you for your support and welcome to the ABA. If you're still listening, perhaps I can convince you to go one step farther and rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your comments and your responses help people find us. Thanks for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He has this crazy theory that Doppler radar blobs are actually college and high school students tossing their caps up in the air after graduation ceremonies. That's why it always happens in May. Technical production is by John Lowry. He cornered me one day and tried to convince me that the Doppler radar blobs are chemtrails, dude. Chemtrails. You know what that means. I can't say anything else. They will hear. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who almost had me believing that the radar blobs are not millions of small birds, but actually one enormous bird who lives in the center of the Earth and emerges each night in spring and fall to feed on the Earth's magnetic field. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We can't really be honest about what we believe the blobs are because we are on the payroll of Big Bird Radar, not to be confused with Big Bird's Radar, the adorable teddy bear from Sesame Street. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.